I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 this morning as we uh, once again re, re initiate, or we initiate our study of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel. We're going to Mark chapter 9 this morning, and we're in the middle of a three chapter section in the gospel uh, where Jesus will three times predict his own death. The disciples will fail, and Jesus will take time to teach the disciples about the true cost of following Jesus. So in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 35, through chapter 10 and verse 31, Jesus reveals through teaching what it costs to be his follower. Although his followers will not go with him uh, to Jerusalem and be uh, lifted on a cross... Uh, they must be cross-bearers in other ways. More specifically, Jesus explains here that following him will dramatically reverse the way that uh, people see things. Remember two weeks ago, we began to see this, when Jesus began to strongly rebuke the disciples who were arguing about who would be the greatest uh, among them. Remember, Jesus had just predicted his death, and they're having a dispute about who would be the greatest. And so in response, Jesus rebukes them, and he suggests that his followers, genuine followers, won't push and shove to the front, but will serve even the most vulnerable of people in his community of followers. The most vulnerable being in that text, children. I was not able to tell you this two weeks ago, but I intend to show you as we go throughout the day that those verses, verses 36 and 37, start what we've seen uh, occur several times in this gospel, a Markin sandwich, a theme that will be repeated at the end of chapter 9, and there's an intervening story in between. These stories all have to do with how to treat vulnerable people, how to treat vulnerable followers of Jesus Christ. And so today we will continue our focus on what Jesus says about the way we are to treat those who follow him in community. And I believe that from verses 38 through 50, Jesus makes three major points about how genuine followers must treat other believers. Okay, now we're going to deal with this a little bit differently than perhaps we have done so in the past. It's, we're going to change it up just a bit. Now, we're still going to go through the text because we love the text. What I'd like to do is I would like to take the first two major points that Jesus gives and cover them this morning with you. We're going to deal with verses 35 through 48. And then I want to invite you to come back tonight at 5 o'clock for the third major point that Jesus makes, verses 49 and 50. And at the end of that time this evening, after a, maybe a 25-minute sermon or so this evening, I'm going to open it up to questions that you might have from the floor about this text and its meaning. Because this text is a little bit more difficult to understand. And we're going to slow down a little bit in this text because these are the words of Jesus. He is teaching his disciples some very important things. And we want to make sure that when we leave this evening, we get this text and we understand its relevance to our life. So that's what we're going to do. So this is my suggestion to you. If you've got a bulletin, you can pull out the note sheet that's in the bulletin. You can take notes. 
And when you come across the question, something I'm saying, something the text is saying that you don't understand, write it down. And then bring it back tonight. We'll finish out the final part of that bulletin insert, and then we'll have some time for a question and answers. And if I don't know the answer, um, I'll just tell you I don't know the answer. I spent uh, much time this week studying this text, and I invite you uh, to read it with me. I'm going to read it out loud, and uh, let's do this. If you are physically able to this morning, out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me as I read the text of Scripture? Mark 9, 35, and I'll read the whole text through verse 50. Actually, verses 38 through 50. Verse 38 says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You may have a seat. The first point I believe that Jesus makes in this text is found in verses 38 through 41. If I were to state this point very clearly to you, I think what Jesus is saying is he's saying you must not reject those who lack proper credentials or endorsements. You must not reject those who lack proper credentials. The story starts in verse 38 with the disciples' condemnation. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It's very interesting, verses 38 through 41 are this very interesting story that's not found in the other Gospels. This is its place in the New Testament right here. It's a tale of the unknown exorcist. This unknown man who is casting out demons. And we see the way that John and the disciples respond to him. John, the beloved disciple, one of the sons of thunder, the nickname that Jesus gave them. You can see in Mark chapter 3, I think maybe a little bit of John's demeanor, sons of thunder. John takes it upon himself to represent the disciples and to try to prevent or censor someone who was doing work in Jesus' name. 
I just want to make a few points about this text to help us understand it, I think, uh, to help us see uh, what we can learn here. First, I want us to consider what we know about this exorcist. While it is not certain, I believe that we are to assume that this man was a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. So where do you see that preacher in the text? Well, two times in verses 38 and 39, we learn that it says that he did these things in the name of Jesus. Jesus also does not rebuke him or try to stop him himself. He actually suggests just the opposite when the disciples uh, in how they're to treat him. I think the language then strongly implies that the man was having some sort of success in casting out demons. So the way this text is written, what we're left to believe is that this man was doing something that the disciples failed to do earlier in the text in Mark 9. Okay, and that is casting out demons in the name or on the authority of Jesus. Now second, I want you to consider the reason why John tried to prevent him. It's right in the text. The reason why he tries to stop him and the disciples is the text says because he was not following us. The word us is a reference to at least the disciples themselves, the 12. He's not a follower of us, or it could also include Jesus and the disciples. Either way, what he doesn't say is instructive to us. John doesn't say, We tried to stop him because he was not following you. He says we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And in that difference of pronouns, I think we get an idea of what the the real problem the disciples had uh, with this man was. John and the disciples felt that this man was making them look bad and was doing things that only they were supposed to do. I like what R.T. France, uh, his commentary on this text, how he describes it. He says that this man's exorcisms were a severe blow to the disciples' sense of identity, and they were undermining their special status. So the problem that Jesus is going after here is the disciples' inclination to be too narrow. That is, they did not know the man, so they stopped him. He was not a part of their insider group. So Jesus responds with a, with a command in uh, verse 39. He says, do not stop him. I mean, the command is simple. Don't prevent him. And then in the middle of verse 39 and the beginning of verse 40, he gives them two reasons why they shouldn't do this. And you can see this right in your Bible. If you've got the translation I'm using, the ESV, you see it in the middle of verse 39. The next phrase starts with the word for. That comes from one Greek word that's also the first word that's used in verse 40. You look down at verse 40 and you see the word for there as well. If you mark in your Bible, you might underline those two little words to remind you that Jesus gives two primary reasons why they should not stop this unknown exorcist. What are his two reasons? First, they should not reject him because it would be unusual for this man to turn quickly away from Christ to speak evil of him. I think to understand this first reason, the middle part of verse 39, you need to 
reflect upon the phrase that this man was doing a mighty work in my name. Jesus, that's how he described it. He was doing a mighty work in my name. Jesus is not talking here about some person who claimed to be a man or a woman of God and had some minor little insignificant claim or declaration to spiritual victory. I mean, this man was actually able to cast out demons. And that, men and women, is a spiritual work. That is something that men and women cannot do in their own strength. The disciples learned this or should be learning this. This is also something that Satan won't do to himself. That's what Jesus told us. Satan won't bind himself. The only person who casts out demons is God through the Holy Spirit. So this man is doing a mighty or significant work. Further than Jesus says that if a man is doing something spiritually significant like this through the power of God, he won't soon turn to speak evil about Christ. So they should not stop him because it'd be very unusual for a man like this to turn quickly away and speak evil of Christ. But then in verse 40, look in your Bible, verse 40, this little phrase, it seems to be this very important phrase that Jesus gives here, for the one who's not against us is for us. That's reason number two. The second reason you should not reject this man is because he is on your side. He is on your side. You should not reject him because they would be stopping someone who's on the same side of them. It's like shooting a fellow soldier in battle. Verse 41, then, I see as an illustration, an illustration of one way that someone might be helping them instead of opposing them. Verse 41, you have the illustration of someone giving a cup of water to drink. If they'll do even something as insignificant as that, a little thing to help you instead of opposing you, God will reward it. Illustration of this principle. So Jesus here gives two reasons why the disciples should not reject someone simply because they're unfamiliar with them. And I want to draw just a few applications here for our church before we go too far here. Unfortunately, I think even in our own day, there are those who have significance in the church who attempt to marginalize or silence the nobodies. I find this true sometimes among the superstars of evangelicalism. Often I think they will surround themselves with their own networks and their own friends and prevent others from sharing their platforms. I may say this of us at Colonial, may this never be true of us at Colonial Baptist Church. If God gives us any level of influence, gives you any level of influence in our church or beyond, do not use that influence to marginalize and silence other followers of Jesus. I mean, in this text, if you stop and think about verses 38 through 41, Jesus is forbidding rejecting Christian ministers simply because they're not a part of our insider group. I mean, if their theology is wrong, that's, one, that's another story. But don't simply reject someone outside the walls of this assembly claims to be a Christian because you're not familiar with them. There are many believers all around the world that we don't know 
that might not even be members of Baptist churches who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ alone. They believe that salvation is attained through Jesus Christ alone. They fully support the inerrancy of this book, but they might not share the same exact heritage that we do. So Jesus' words here to the disciples, I think, are important for us as well. We should not prevent them. For the ones who are not against us are for us. Then in verses 42 through 48, I think we see the second point that Jesus makes here. The second point that he makes is we must not abuse those who seem to be insignificant among us. Verse 42 here, Mark leaves the attention that he gives to this unknown exorcist and he returns to a familiar subject. He returns again to how the disciples should treat little ones. I want you to see a few things in your text. Uh, so this is detailed, but I want you to see it in your Bible. Look at, I want you to see the beginning of verses 42 and 37. I want you to see how they're similar. Okay, look at the beginning of verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now look at the beginning of verse 37 in your Bible, right? You got your Bible out, it's right there, you're following along. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I find it very interesting that both of these verses start with a relative pronoun. You say, I have no idea what a relative pronoun is. The word whoever. They both start with the word whoever. They then have a verb right after that. And then they have a vulnerable person right after that. Okay, a vulnerable person, a a child, and then a little believer in Jesus Christ. I think this form suggests in verses 37 and 42, or Mark 9, suggests that the verses in between them, verses 38 through 41, are the middle part of a sandwich. This is a tale about an unknown exorcist. Okay, and I think that these three paragraphs work together to make a very important point from Jesus. This is like Jesus' point. Okay, so verses 35 and 36, there he is showing, I think there's progression in, the, in these paragraphs too, but he's going from dealing with a vulnerable child, verses 35 and 36, to uh, another vulnerable follower, this man who didn't have the sanction of the apostles, unknown exorcist, verses 38 through 41, to protecting any insignificant or vulnerable believer in verses 42 through 48. And so that's why I'm going to take this little phrase, the beginning of verse 42, uh, any one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. I think that any little one who believes in Jesus is this like category of any insignificant or vulnerable follower of Jesus Christ. And and this section starts in verse 42, lasts the whole way through verse 48. We know that because if you're looking in your Bible, you see that there is a verb that's repeated over and over again in this text. 
So if you look in your Bible at verse 42, look down your Bible at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. There's a verb that's reflected by the words causes to sin. In verse 42, that same exact verb is in verse 43, 45, and 47. Okay, so this is a section that Jesus wants you to hold together. When in verse 43 says, if your hand causes to sin. Verse 45, if your foot causes to sin. Verse 47, if your eye causes to sin. Now this verb, causes to sin, ties the whole section together and speaks of one who would trip or disable another person's early discipleship. This verb, skandalizomai, or skandalizo, is causes to sin, is a strong word that speaks of causing a fledgling, professing believer to fall away from Christ. Okay, so what Jesus is going to do in this text is he is going to issue a very strong warning, a strong, ominous warning to anyone who would cause a fledgling believer, professing believer, to trip or to stumble in their early discipleship. Let's start through these verses and see what what the nature of this warning. Verse 42, first he, he says, causing others to fall in this significant way brings severe consequences. Look in your Bible, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus starts out here clear enough in verse 42. I mean, that's a very graphic description from Jesus. That if you offend one of these insignificant or lowly believers, followers of mine, you will suffer severe consequences. And the punishment that he describes here will be worse than something. So it's worse than having a heavy millstone being hung around your neck and being tossed in the sea to drown. A heavy millstone would be used of the the large heavy stones would be used of threshing grain. These stones sometimes are so large it would require a donkey to pull them around. So you can imagine your fate. You take one of those stones and you attach it to your neck and you're tossed into the sea. But verse 42, he says, this sort of punishment, this watery demise, is only a slight or it is mild one compared to what will actually happen to these people. You say, what could be worse than dying like that? And I say, keep reading. Keep reading the text. Now, right before we do that, let me make a quick point about some of the verses that we're going to read. You may have noticed that verses 44 and 46 are not found in many of our English Bibles. That's because the Greek text behind them is not found in any of the earliest or best Greek manuscripts. Is that, you know, we don't have any of the original manuscripts. We've got some copies, and some of the copies come from just a few hundred years. 
after the originals, and our earliest copies don't have verses 44 and 46 in it. That's why some Bibles like the ESV don't have those verses in it. Now, in this case, it doesn't make a huge difference because verses 44 and 46, what you see in those verses are the same exact words that are found in verse 48. So verse 48 says, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That phrase is either found three times in this text or one time only in verse 48. Okay, so we're going to cover it when we get to verse 48. But I want to walk through this text and read it to find out what judgment is worse than drowning in the sea. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So men and women, what is worse than drowning in the sea? Eternal punishment in hell. That's what's worse. And so this section, I think, is set up in parallel ways. I'm going to just point out a few of the parallel things for us to to understand this section, and we'll make application at the end of the sermon. I want you to first notice the three if statements in verse 43, 45, and 47. These three if statements are demonstrating the multiple parallel ways that one might offend an insignificant or lowly follower of Christ. It's possible to do so with one's hand, with one's foot, and with one's eye. Okay, now, people will take the teaching of these verses in many different ways. Uh, And Christians try to apply them to their own Christian experience in different ways. So, for instance, some, some Christians have taken these words literally and have even mutilated their bodies as a form of fighting against the lust of their own flesh. Origin, for example, is the church father Origin is an example of a man who self mutilated himself, mutilated himself. Yet, even after doing so, he still felt the strong battle with the lust within. I don't think that Jesus' point in verses 43, 45, and 47 is to say that we should mutilate ourselves. That's not Jesus' point. He does not say these words to make people mutilate their bodies. He wants us to control our bodies and use our bodies to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Glorify God with your body and your spirit, which are his. Other Christians, however, use this text to help in areas involving immoral thoughts and actions. I think other texts help them to do this, like Matthew 5, 29 and 30 which substantiate this application and lead people to put stringent limitations and restrictions upon their offending eye, for instance. So they set up radical standards to keep themselves from known areas of weakness. I think this is a good application of the text until we're built up to be able to handle the situation or the temptation. I think it's a good application, but... The most direct application of this text, as I see it, from my perspective, has to do with the way one treats insignificant followers of Jesus. 
using their bodily powers to trip up others or disable weak followers. So Christ's threefold description here, body parts, speaks of multiple parallel ways someone might offend little ones who believe in Jesus. They might use force to stop them with their hand. They might run to prevent them and oppose them. They might send condescending looks, hateful looks at these insignificant believers, these lowly believers to discourage them. So we see the parallel ways one might offend a follower. But I want you to also see in this text that there there is a reward. There are parallel ways that a reward that can be forfeited is described. I see this in verse 43, 45, and 47 as well, but in the middle of the verses. In the middle of verse 43, he talks about this reward. It says, he says in the middle there, it is better for you to enter life crippled. Go to verse 45, middle of the verse. It's better for you to enter life lame. Go to the middle of verse 47. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God. These are parallel ways for Jesus talk to, for him to talk about the, the reward that can be forfeited. And when he says to enter life, I think that this is clearly in the text the opposite of entering hell. I agree with one commentator by the name of Mark Strauss who, who writes, life here is clearly eternal life in God's presence. So he says it's better to enter life this way. I think he's talking about eternal life in the presence of God as followers of Jesus Christ. Another way that he says this is in verse 47 when he, he talks about entering the kingdom of God. Now I think there are multiple different ways we can talk about using the word kingdom in our world today, but in this text, Jesus makes it very clear by what he means when he talks about the kingdom. Here in this text, at least, the kingdom is something future. It is the opposite of what? Verse 47, it's the opposite of being thrown into hell. And so Jesus is, uh, in this text, he's using synonymous parallelism to enter life is to enter the kingdom. They are the same. They are future. That is, they're outside of the pale of our earthly existence. He's speaking here of a a future possible reward for his followers, and he's using them to to, to motivate them in the present not to abuse insignificant followers of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is saying here, don't do it. Don't offend my followers. You want eternal life with God, right? You want to enter the kingdom, right? Don't cause one of these little ones who believe in me to offend. These are parallel descriptions of the forfeited reward of those who are not genuine followers of Jesus Christ. But finally, I want you to see, and for the sake of our last few minutes here, we'll see the parallelism in this text that is manifested in the threefold repetition of the punishment that offenders face. Clearly stated in this text, the punishment that offenders face is hell. 
Men and women, this would be one of the soberest messages I would ever preach from this pulpit. Hell is a place of eternal punishment. A place of unquenchable fire. And we're going to take about five or six minutes to consider it this morning. I'm mindful of what an old commentator said about the reality of hell. He said, if you spend any more than five minutes, actually five concentrated minutes thinking about it, it will drive you insane. But we'll look at hell. The word that Jesus uses here is Gehenna, which was normally, which was a word that was originally used of the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a ravine outside of Jerusalem that contained perpetual fires and rotting flesh. The Valley of Hinnom was a desecrated garbage dump where the entrails of animals were burned and garbage was also burned. This place, the Valley of Hinnom, the word Gehenna, came to be used as a metaphor or a picture of what the eternal punishment of those who reject Christ will be like. So Jesus uses this word, strong word, Gehenna. Then, in verse 48, Jesus describes hell in two more ways. He appends two statements to his often description of hell, and he describes hell in two ways. He says, hell is a place of fire and worms. Men and women, this is not just a description that Jesus would give. This is not new to him. This is something that Jewish theology also believed. And the reason Jewish theology believed that is because they found it in the Old Testament scripture. As a matter of fact, when Jesus appends these two phrases, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, he is actually quoting from a place in your Old Testament Bible. As we close, I invite you to turn over there in your Bibles. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66, when Jesus quotes this verse, he quotes from the very last word, words, verse of Isaiah's prophecy. And I want us to understand its original setting, and I want to show you what Jesus does with it. So we go to Isaiah chapter 66, this massive book, this very important book, to probably the most important verse on hell in the Old Testament. And in verses 22 through 24, we're going to read through this text, we will see that Jesus describes the fate of two groups of people. Those of Israel and their offspring, the worshipers from the nations that join them. So you got that group, but then we have those who stand in rebellion against Jesus, against the Lord. Look at verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Okay, so it's promised to Israel, I'm going to make a new heaven and new earth, and as long as that lasts, so will your offspring. For new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Not just the Jews, the Gentiles too. Worshippers, genuine worshipers through Jesus Christ will worship this time as well. You got that group, but then you got the rebellious group. 
And they, these genuine worshipers, shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Verse 24, I think the specific group he's talking about are those who rebel against Jesus in one of the great end time battles at his return. And so verse 24 describes genuine worshipers looking at the corpses of the fallen. And in this vivid description of their destruction, we see that it continues endlessly on these infamous rebels. Now, go back to Mark's gospel as we close. Christ then takes this familiar, important text from the Old Testament, and he applies it to anyone who opposes his followers. He's saying, if you would genuinely follow me, you won't abuse my followers, even the little ones who believe in me. I think that this teaching is expanded in the New Testament to describe the literal flames of hell, which are forever and ever, and are used as well for anyone who rejects Jesus. And so men and women, as I study the New Testament, this is the fate of all people who reject Jesus Christ. This is the fate of my neighbors who don't know Jesus. This is the fate of my coworkers, your coworkers, who don't know Jesus. This is the fate of my relative who does not believe in Jesus. The fires of hell will never cease for them. They will never be quenched. And the worms there will never die. These worms, they're described here, are incorruptible worms that never cease in their devouring. And I might point out one of the things that grabbed me this week, they're possessive worms. You see the possessive pronoun there? There? It means the men and women of hell have their own devouring worms. This is a sober message. It's a sad message, but Jesus makes it very clear. Perhaps this week your heart has been moved by the victims of Hurricane Florence in North Carolina and South Carolina. And rightfully so. A powerful storm bringing terrible devastation and destruction for many. People have lost lives. Believers are not able to worship in corporate gatherings today. The survivors need our prayers. I think, I mean, this morning we heard about India, storms there, the monsoons in Hong Kong and and other places, and that grips our heart. But our hearts must also be moved this morning for billions of people who reject Jesus and his followers and will experience something far worse 
eternal flames, devouring worms in hell forever. Perhaps you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus and turned from your sin. The Bible is clear. Those who reject him and his followers be sentenced to hell. But you can be released from this punishment through the work of Christ. If you would repent of your sins today and believe in your heart that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again, you can be delivered from hell. This fate would not describe you. Spend some time to pray together. Father, as we think of this sober text, as we reflect upon two of the most graphic, clearest texts about hell in the Bible, I pray that we would not leave unaffected. Our hearts are moved by current events for those who are struggling physically in hurricanes, and Lord, help us to be able to minister to them. Lord, as we consider this text, may our hearts be moved as well for men and women who will be subject to eternal fire because of their sin. Lord, may we not be hypocritical. And may we actually have a burden for this, not just when we're in the pulpit or when we're in a pew, but when we're interacting with people throughout the week. Oh, Lord, please save our neighbors, our coworkers, our relatives who don't know Christ for your glory. And use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.